With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. What's that football book is doing? Last week they had Brady. This week they got Brady. We're doing it. We're literally doing it differently from everybody else. As a matter of fact, moving forward from this point on, I will not make reference to PFL. Do you not understand that they are that way because you're Joe Flacco? And you just like to discredit things that people deserve credit for. That you can't possibly be expected to defend that. Talk about the game, Sam. So Who cares about what people think about us. Yeah, I like football, I like football season, all the things that go with it. Welcome in to the PFF NFL podcast. Steve Palazzolo back here with Sam Monson. Sam, how you doing, buddy? Doing good, Steve. You? Doing great. Didn't have much sleep great. last night. The kiddos. The kiddos. Mm. They just, little guy Toby, just uh, didn't want to sleep. Somewhere between 3 and 5 a.m., I think it was. Yeah, yeah, that'll happen. Yeah. Um, we somebody mentioned that we didn't we did way more discussing of my children before they showed up than after <laughs> so we should probably do like an hour and a half I, i'll describe toby's eight days of life you know to this yeah. point or whatever you know okay you can do it at the end of the podcast after i've <laughs> left the monologue at the end yeah uh they are all my kids are named after vikings though that was the one trend unintentionally we've got That's why we were expecting this one to be linval maybe linval <sighs> If there's a fifth, I think Linval's in the mix. Linval Zolo. But we got Toby Gare. We got Harrison Smith, Teddy Bridgewater, Benny Sapp, and Toby Gerhart. Hmm. All unintentionally named after uh, Vikings. So. Allegedly. So that's where we are. Enough about my kids. We're talking yeah. wide receivers today, Sam. You and I are doing all of the uh, previews and rankings and all the fun stuff over these uh, in the next few weeks as we get ready for the season. So we've got position previews. We already talked offensive line. Uh, you and I teamed up for some of the team previews that are going up on the site. There's 32 of them. I suggest you check out when your team comes out. It's a lot of detail, a lot of in-depth, everything you need to know position by position over at pff.com. But today it's all wide receivers. We're talking wide receiver unit rankings, but we could also talk a little bit about the individual best receivers in the NFL. Let's start with that. In case somebody clicked on this show that said wide receiver rankings and said, man, I thought they were going to tell me about Michael Thomas and Julio Jones and DeAndre Hopkins. Uh, who do you have a favorite? Who's your Who's the best wide receiver in the NFL? Who are you starting a team with right now? Uh, I mean, I think the number one is still Julio Jones until proven otherwise. I know that Michael Thomas was was part of the '99 club in Madden. For some reason, yeah. uh, it was like you know, the, there was six guys, was it or five guys, and like all of them except one were the obvious, you know. Patrick Mahomes, Aaron Donald, the people you expect them to be. And then somehow Michael Thomas got the last one. And look, 
we've been on like the other side of the Michael Thomas thing saying, look, he's, he's an elite receiver. And, you know, most of the criticism thrown his way are kind of baseless um, or at the very minimum, not something that he's responsible for, right? Like the saints have these designated deep receivers, so they don't ask him to go deep a lot. Uh, but the idea that he's a 99 and Julio Jones isn't is questionable. I would suggest. Yeah. Julio has been just so good. We discussed this on the top 50 show, just so good for a large period of time, you know, since he got into the league in 2011, um, I, I keep coming back. I think the thing you're going to hear me say over and over during this show is for the good receivers, they win everywhere. And then for the good receiving units is they're able to win everywhere. Julio is the epitome of able to win everywhere. Uh, if you throw him a ton of screens, he's tough after the catch. If you just want to, you know, work the slant game, like if he ran the same number of slants that Michael Thomas ran, I'm sure he would rack up some receptions again, not taking anything away from Michael Thomas. Um, if Julio needed to be an Uber possession receiver, he could be, but he is so good at the intermediate level downfield, the back shoulder game, all of that. Um, I would definitely take, take Julio right now. But the other thing that we've discussed is if you're starting a team right now, off field aside is Tyreek Hill in that conversation. He might not have the best overall grade out of all these guys, but as far as defenses accounting for what he can do and for what you can do with him offensively, Tyreek Hill probably in that conversation with Julio. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he's the most dangerous receiver in the NFL. I think you can't switch off for a second. Um, we've seen it, you know, Jalen Ramsey's gone one-on-one with him all, all game long. And then you get one, one game or one snap rather where Ramsey lets him get off the line and bam, like a 30 yard reception immediately. So Tyreek Hill is just, he changes the way defenses need to defend in a way that not that many receivers do. It's like the Randy Moss thing, you know, even you could, cover him well all game long and then bam one one play you switch off it's a 50 yard touchdown it's it's game over Tyreek Hill's the same kind of thing you know Super Bowl we switch off one third and 15 and the game swings in your direction so with given age and you know those, those kinds of things that start to factor in when you start talking about if you were starting from scratch right now yeah I think Tyreek Tyree Hill Arguably the first name you would choose. Um, going back to Julio for a second, though, do you have a good explanation for his lack of uh, touchdowns, his red zone inefficiency, which is the, basically the only criticism that ever gets thrown yeah. his way, right? If you look at sort of where he is in terms of all-time lists, receptions, yards, he's right up there and an insane pace. Touchdowns, he's just not in the same world as a lot of all-time past greats. And rightly or wrongly, you know, when we get 10 years after everybody's career, that's how they're going to judge this, right? It's, you're just going to call up the all-time stats. Well, look, he's only got this yeah, number of touchdowns. touchdowns. Yeah. Um, so I've seen other people try to explain this away, and I, I'll kind of buy into that take. I think Julio has a bit of – he's got – it's it's not completely build-up speed, but I do think he does his best work kind of setting up defenders using his speed to maneuver them around a little bit. And you don't have as much opportunity to do that in the short areas. So, you know, like if there was a knock on Julio, he's not the quickest guy in the world because he's so big. He's not, um, he's not really dynamic in short areas compared to some other guys. Um, I also think from like, a, I was making this Malik Hooker example about, about him being a free safety 
let me know what you think on this. I, I think Julio's ball skills and his ability to track is just unbelievable, right? He does that, but he does it down the field extremely well. Matt Ryan can throw the ball. Matt Ryan started doing this, I think, right around his MVP season. He started throwing moon balls, like Ryan Fitzpatrick moon balls. And you'd have Julio just get under it and track it like a center fielder or like a free safety would. Um, and I was, I made this point on hooker a couple of year, a couple of weeks back with you, where I said, it seems like he's better when he has 30 yards to cover and a big lofted pass to kind of, you know, get the right angle and get under it and make a play. But if you zip it in there and it's more of a seam route, he doesn't have like the short area quicks to just break on the ball quickly enough. I, I don't know if Julio has some of that. So when you get inside the five, um, if his ball skills in the short area are, are as good as when you get him down the field and he can track it and take the right angle and use his length and all that stuff. You know, I, I don't know if that's something you've seen, but I think intuitively when we're just watching him, they force a lot of passes to him in the red zone and they just don't seem to go all that well. But that, and it's like, this guy's got great ball skills, like from a scouting standpoint, checkbox. It's re they're really good, but maybe in the short areas, not being as dynamic on some of those slants and maybe not having the same ball skills um, in short areas as he does down the field on some of those fades. I think a big part of it is the offense rather than him. Um, okay. It's like we said, they, they force a ton to him down in the red zone. And it, when you're doing that in the red zone in particular, it's just not efficient, right? It's like this, it's like end zone fades. Like those things I think were like six for 36. No one, for, some, yeah, something like that. Six for 36, something like that in terms of like, end zone fades to completed passes last season. Um, they were just a horrifically 16.7%. Yeah, yeah. A horrifically inefficient pass. Like one of the worst, literally one of the worst routes you could run inside the five yard line. Um, almost every other type of route was significantly better. And yet people still think, well, let's just give it a go. Our guy's got a mismatch. It's a win, right? I think that's kind of the way it is with Julio Jones. Like, well, Julio Jones is a mismatch. So let's just feed him the ball relentlessly. But if you do that, everyone knows you're doing that. So it's easier to defend. Um, and I think that's a big part of it is that teams know once the Falcons get into the red zone and get deep, you know, close to the goal line, the ball is coming Julio Jones' way and it becomes easier to defend. If they were more uh, diverse, if they were more versatile, if they had more threats um, that you had to defend, I think it would open things up for Julio to be more efficient when the pass did come his way. Yeah, it, I think those are all good points. I also look at it a little bit like the Brandon Graham sack thing. Like one of these days, Julio is just going to have 14 touchdowns, right? It's just going to happen. One of these days, I think you'll kind of stumble into it. Touchdowns are one of those things that fluctuate uh, quite a bit from year to year. Uh, we've seen many receivers kind of come out of nowhere and have their 10 touchdown season. Julio did have you know his career highest 12 back in 2012, including the playoffs. Um, yeah, I think that would be the only knock on him, though. It would be, um, from a statistical standpoint, they're going to look back and say, it's only got 63 career touchdowns, including the postseason, Sam. That's uh, that's not what the elite receivers do, but I do think Julio um, is still, I think, between him and Tyree Kill, the guy that I'm, I'm building a team around. So let's get into the rankings. We went 1 through 32, just wide receivers. We've done this with receivers and tight ends before. Uh, we split them up for these particular rankings. They're on the site over at pff.com. Do you want to work from the bottom up and discuss some of the key teams, or do you want to start right at the top? Whatever way you want to do it, Steve. All right, let's start with the bowl. We'll work our way up to number one. Let's start at the bottom. 
Um, as we were putting this list together, I did the majority of the list, but got a lot of feedback from you in particular. And it, part of our debate, I think, is the 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 elite one receiver. When you have one receiver and literally nobody around them, hello, Washington, uh, versus what I love is the teams that have some depth. And you'll see some of the teams in the top 10 might not have a top 10 receiver or a top five receiver, but they've got, they're, they're rolling three deep. Um, and I love the ability to just win all over the place and have various skill sets. So we debated a little bit, bit of that at the very bottom. Uh, we have 30 and 30, 30, 31 and 32, the new England Patriots, the New York jets and the Jacksonville Jaguars. And, and the thing about this, Sam is all teams have, as I was going through this, they all have like a scenario where the, this receiving unit looks pretty good. The Jets are one of those teams. The Jaguars have a good receiver in DJ Chark. The Patriots have a good receiver in Julian Edelman. But I think everything around them is just such a massive question mark. It's tough to put them above any of the other teams. Yeah, to what extent does one receiver make a receiving core, I think is is an interesting question with this stuff. Because um, that's Washington, right? It's like Terry McLaurin was fantastic last year. You would expect him to be even better in year two, particularly if the quarterback situation improves, like if Dwayne Haskins actually becomes halfway decent um, as opposed to, you know, struggled really badly when he first started and then improved as he went on. But sample size is really small. But if Haskins like reaches the point where he's helping his receiver as opposed to hindering him, McLaren takes another step forward. I mean, he could easily be a top five, top 10 receiver, but he is light years ahead of anybody else in that roster. Can I read so, the rest of the depth chart with Terry McLaurin? We've yeah, we have Kelvin Harmon who just I think tore an ACL. He's out. Uh, yep. Trey Quinn, slot receiver. Cam Sims, Stephen Sims Jr., Cody Latimer, and then fourth round pick Antonio Gandy Golden. I mean, th- there is not if you uh, that is the worst receiving unit in the league by a mile if you take McLaurin off that team. And I think initially I said, look, Sam, they have to be thirty one or thirty two. They have to be at the bottom. And you fought hard as a as a McLaurin fan to move them up and I think it is a legitimate debate you know just having him on the field as a guy that wins at all levels of the field with the speed with the route running does he carry them up enough to not put them at the bottom we did have him what a 29 so I mean they're still low yeah I mean I and I like Gandy Golden but the chances of a fourth round pick becoming a you know plus player for you right away are minimal so you basically have to treat him as you know inconsequential in terms of ranking the receiver. So it really is Terry McLaurin and nobody else like Terry McLaurin and four creative players from Madden without the stats put in, right? What does that equal in terms of a receiving core? But I think because we've seen that McLaurin has been this effective, it has to, you know, it has to carry a decent amount of weight. Like McLaurin on his own as a threat, literally with four other random bodies is still more effective than we've seen from some of these other receiving cores that just have nobody that literally don't have a single player that can consistently win and stress defenses. Like even, I mean, even the Patriots are a good example, right? Because last season they had Julian Edelman, who we know is a good player, but Edelman on his own is not enough for that receiving core because you can take away Edelman. He plays, you know, inside where you can kind of squeeze all the areas he likes to work and you can force the ball at somewhere else it's hard to do that with a guy like McLaren who wins on the outside because it's, I mean, it's just harder generally to swing coverage that much towards a perimeter receiver 
as opposed to a guy that works inside. Like generally the guys that work in the slot, there's more traffic there anyway. It's the middle of the field. There's just more bodies around. And if you really want to focus on that guy, you can make that even more the case. But the outside guys, if you want to take him away, you have to take a guy from the middle of the field somewhere and shift them all the way to the outside, which opens like a giant hole up in the middle somewhere. So it's doable. I mean, you know, guys like Randy Moss, they attracted that kind of attention, but it does significantly open up something else elsewhere. Uh, the two teams at the bottom, we said the Jacksonville Jaguars. Again, I like, I'm like. i looking back at this. I'm like, man, DJ Chark really emerged last year. And D.D. Westbrook, you know, he's a solid possession receiver. And then it's like, all right, well, there's Chris Conley. And you don't know what you're going to get from LaVisca Chenault. Uh, you can always paint a picture. You can always paint this yeah. best case scenario for all the teams. So even and the Jags at third. Go ahead. Yeah, and Chenault in particular would be the one that, like, potentially catapults this group somewhere else right because he's got first round talent he's an incredible um athlete he's got absurd ability you can easily imagine a situation where he hits the ground running and becomes you know this year's terry mclaren or whatever but he's there's a lot of question marks right there's a reason he slipped to the second round from being um you know uh, one of the most talented receivers in one of the most talented receiving drafts of all time uh so you have again it's like can you expect him can you expect as opposed to hope that he will dominate early? And then the, uh, the New York jets, it's like the 2020 jets are just the what ifs. I saw people commenting on my comments about their offensive line, which was four or five. What ifs? And you could see the scenario where they have success there. I feel like their receiving core is the same. If Brashad Perryman duplicates exactly what he did last year at 17 yards per reception as a deep threat, Denzel Mims is as good as you think he is right away. And Jameson Crowder is, a really nice complimentary slot receiver. Like there is a scenario where that trio becomes pretty productive. You pair it with Sam Darnold, who's still young, Sam, and he's in year three and it all comes together. But right now it's if, 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 so they're at 31. Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, they had Robbie Anderson last year. Brashad Perriman has to be as good as Robbie Anderson is as a sort of designated deep threat, which is not that likely. I mean, I know, Perriman looked great for like a four-game stretch last season, right? But that's the only time he's still good in his NFL career. Robbie Anderson has consistently been one of the best deep threat receivers in the game. So it's not a given that Perriman is able to replace that, at which point the difference between last year's receiving core and this one is Denzel Mims, who, you know, I love. I thought he was – I mean, he had the highest grade we've ever seen at the Senior Bowl. But his college tape was not that spectacular, and a lot of people were concerned about how little separation – he was able to generate um, in that offense. Uh, I think, you know, you can explain it. There are reasons for it, but that is, is a concern. Like Denzel Mims is the difference between this group last year and this year. And last year wasn't good. Right. So the other teams that are in the 20, before we go, did you see somebody uh, put maths to the, the offensive line thing, for the jets, you know, we've been terming it like five coin flips. Like what does that actually equate to? Um, it was long, long time listener, I think. Uh, damn it. What is his name? Jonas Lejean, something like that. I can't remember okay, what the guy's yeah, name yeah. is. Um, Leon. So five, if it's essentially five coin flips, the chances of them having a, an average across the board line is one in 32, essentially. It's basically, like if, if all 32 teams did that, one of them would get an average across the board line. Now, I think it's better than five coin flips because... 
Like I, I think some of these, some of the gambles they've taken are probably better than a coin flip of being sure. average, right? Yep. Like I, I think, you know, Connor McGovern is probably the closest to a sure thing they have. I think McGovern is far from a sure thing. Like he was good last year, but that is, it's a, it's a bit of an outlier from his previous career um, baseline. Like it's not, he's been getting better. And I think you can make the case that he has developed into a player, but equally he could go back towards where he was and be below average. Um, But I think overall it's probably a little bit better than five coin flips, but that kind of puts into perspective just how unlikely it is that the jets have fixed the offensive line, right? Like even if we skew positive, like five coin flips is one in 32. So let's say it's like one in 10 that this thing works out to being five average offensive linemen. Even, even if we, part of our issue with them is McGovern's coming off a career year, as you say, Greg Van Roten is coming off of a career year. He's not even necessarily a lock to start, but even if you start both of those guys and they perform exactly as they did last year, and then Makai Becton becomes, you know, a pretty good rookie tackle. That's if those two work out, that's two out of five. Right. Now you need three more. Right. Just to get, just to get to mediocre land. So yeah, that's, it's not great. Um, the rest of the teams in the twenties, I think are off either characterized by a lack of depth, more question marks, or in green Bay's case at 24, they were a tough one to figure out because they have Devontae Adams. I mean, Devontae Adams is legitimately in the top five wide receiver conversation. I think right now you'd say he's better than Terry McLaurin just because of the body of work and all that stuff, even though McLaurin maybe has a little bit more of a, you know, big playability than Devontae. But man, you've got Devontae Adams and a bunch of it's it is hilarious when you're going through the depth chart. Everybody else is six four or six five among the receivers. And again, when I'm writing them up, I can I could kind of paint this scenario like Alan Lazard, he's got Aaron Rodgers' trust and he was really good last year. Actually against single coverage, he did a nice job. And Valdez Scanlon gets behind the defense a couple times. He's got four three speed at six four and they added Devin Funches, who, you know, maybe they just make him into a big middle-of-the-field tight end because they don't really have a tight end that is established. They have Jay Sternberger. So I go through all of these scenarios of Devontae Adams and all these 6'4 dudes, you know, working this year, but there's just not a track record there. There's no history there. And some of these guys have played football, and it hasn't been great. So um, Packers at 24, do you think they're too high, or is that fair when they're carried by Devontae? I think it's fair. Um, they're a more extreme version of the Washington Terry McLaren thing, or not a more extreme version, a better version. Um, you know, Devonte Adams is the Terry McLaren, and he's a better Terry McLaren. And then I think the baseline of the other guys is higher than Washington's, which is literally just like five bodies pulled off the street. Um, the Packers have got some talent in that receiving group. It'll be interesting to see what Devin Funches looks like with Aaron Rodgers. Um, because, I mean, that was kind of the selling point of a Jimmy Graham, right? It's like, well, he doesn't get open anymore. On the other hand, he can still go up and take the ball away from guys that are, you know, seven inches shorter than he is. And Aaron Rodgers is the most accurate quarterback in the NFL or one of them. So that's a nice combination. Didn't really work out. Maybe the same thing is true for Devin Funches. Like, he's a big body receiver. He doesn't really separate. But Rodgers, right? If Rodgers trusts you, he'll put the ball there. And it doesn't matter that you're not getting open. Um, I, I think Lazard is actually the interesting one there because 
you know, he's cycled through these other guys, whether it's Valdez Scantling, whether it's, um, you know, Jake Kumaro was supposed to be the guy because they had a connection in training camp, never really panned out. But Lazard, like, they did legitimately seem to have this connection. Like, he, he was somebody that a lot of people liked coming out, hadn't really panned out so far, but he gets thrust into some starting time because of all the injuries and Rogers did seem to like to go to the, uh, to him with the football. Um, and he had a skill set that was working. Like Rogers pass rating towards the Lazard was like 118. His pass rating towards anybody else, including Devonte Adams was 15 plus points lower down. So I could see those two developing into something. And then if they just get anybody to be like a third threat, they're in business. Again, when you take the when you take the peaks from these guys, the the stuff you just said about Lazard, uh, there was a year where Devin Funches caught nine hundred uh, sixty seven passes for nine hundred nineteen yards. But on the surface, when you're looking at all of these guys, it feels like the Packers have a whole bunch of just like intriguing number four receivers. Like I would take Valdez Scantling as a number four receiver who's six four with sub four four speed, who would be a nice complementary piece, and maybe he develops further. Same thing maybe with Kumaro. Equinemius St. Brown is six foot five. He came in that draft class with those monsters too. And he actually moves pretty well for six, five. They're just intriguing developmental options. And then elite Devonte Adams. So 24 for the Packers. I'm going to let you discuss the Pittsburgh Steelers at 23. I had them much lower on this mm. list. And you said, no, they need to move up. Juju Smith, Schuster, James Washington, Deontay Johnson. And then they just drafted chase Claypool in the second round why are the Steelers better than I thought they were originally yeah and it's funny and even just when we look through this list again you know now that it, you sent it over to me for this podcast I'm looking still think again, my low, initial don't you yeah yeah my initial reaction when I got to the Steelers was man we got them way too low um I, I think Juju Smith-Schuster you basically have to write off last season right he that was supposed to be uh his it was supposed to be a big season for him because the year before he had what, like 1400 yards, 10 touchdowns, whatever it was looked basically he was more productive than Antonio Brown. Um, but primarily from the slot and with Antonio Brown taking that attention away from him. So Brown goes crazy leaves. Um, and now the question is, well, can Juju step into that number one role? Can he be the Antonio Brown without an Antonio Brown taking the attention away from him? And I don't think we ever got a fair answer to that question. I mean, if we got an answer, it was no. But I think given everything else that happened in terms of, you know, quarterback goes down, he was dealing with injuries, blah, blah, blah. Like so much happened to that Steelers offense that I don't think you can look at last year and say the answer to that question is no. Um, I think it's fair to say it's certainly it's still a question mark. And if anything, it's a question mark that's, you know, you're, you are uh, less inclined to give him the benefit of the doubt with than you would have a year ago but it's it's still i think up to be answered yeah but so in I, that time my point is he's still that guy in terms right. of a, a dominant potential playmaker and in the intervening time deontay johnson emerged from last year and looked really good despite having genuinely crappy uh, quarterback play and james washington showed signs of life i mean he was disastrous as a rookie but last year made some plays so yeah, it's a projection but you know, if Juju, even if he, even if those two, the emergence of Deontay Johnson and James Washington showing signs of life, even if those two allow Juju to move back into the slot full time, um, or, you know, the, the most of his snaps where he was so effective, that is a plus. 
Deontay Johnson taking a step forward again is a plus. And then James Washington, even if he just stands pat as the designated deep threat or a guy that can make some big plays, that's a pretty good trio. Yeah, I mean, as much I love the ability to win all over the place and have versatile skill sets. This should be a, a wide receiver group that I love. Um, maybe I'm too low on them. I would with Big Ben there, I wouldn't be surprised. Of all the teams on the list, I you know this would be the team I'd expect to move up the most. Um, and you know, to your point, Juju has a very specific skill set. Deontay Johnson has the Antonio Brown-ish type of skill set, where he's an outstanding route runner. And James Washington is the deep threat. And then when you add Claypool there, he's 6'4", ran a 4'4". Um, I don't have high expectations for Chase Pool, I th- uh, for Claypool, uh, because I do think he's a, he's a limited. But once again, going back to that Packers thing, like if you're a 6'4 dude with speed, I love that as a number four option because you could be very specific with what you ask him to do. And especially with Big Ben, um, assuming his arm's healthy, even if Big Ben misses a ton of throws like he did the last time we saw him in 2018. He at least gives these guys opportunities to make plays and put up numbers. So um, I think they have a chance to, to, uh, to move up. Uh, anyone else in the twenties intriguing to you? And then we can, we can jump up into the teens. Um, well, so the Minnesota Vikings are now in the twenties and this was a team that had, you know, last season they had two or the last few years, they've had two of the sort of top 10, top 15 receivers in the NFL and Stefan Diggs and Adam Thielen, and they've desperately struggled to find a number three. You know, it was Treadwell for a while last season, it was uh, BC Johnson. They've just, they haven't been able to find that third guy, even though for most teams, the third guy is the guy that grows on trees and it's the number one and the number two they, they struggle to find. The right. Vikings, for some reason, were able to find number one and number two and then couldn't find number three at any point. Um, but Stefan Diggs departs, and now it's Adam Thielen and bodies i mean they're they're another one of these teams it's one guy justin jefferson not an awful lot else first rounder justin jefferson right but like with all these rookies how those guys perform is projection and not a particularly strong one like as much as there is always receivers every year that hit the ground running it's not like a high it's not a particularly high strike rate these guys are plus players right away particularly when you're expecting them to be like major parts of the offense right away. Like Jefferson's problem is he needs to step in and replace Stephon Diggs. Like now, yeah, you know he doesn't get the chance to. Like if he was the third guy, if they had Diggs, Thielen, and Justin Jefferson got a year to to get his feet wet before the transition, now you're talking. Now that's encouraging. But you're expecting him to come in and be, you know, the the one point five in this offense straight away, and that's tricky. So you might be answering my question here, too, because when we get into the top 10 and we're trying to separate some of these teams, you will see Atlanta, who is like Minnesota previously, where it's, it's you have Julio Jones and Calvin Ridley and then Laquan Treadwell as your number three. So how do you weigh the quality of those top two versus, say, the Bills or the Cowboys who are rolling three deep? And we'll discuss them in a minute. But with the Vikings, my question might be answered if we said, OK, what if you still had Stephon Diggs? What if it was Diggs and uh, Thielen again? They run it back with those two guys, and then you have the question marks of B.C. Johnson and Tajay Sharp and whoever else is in there. Are they all of a sudden top 10? Do they go from the 20s to top 10 on the strength of those top two? Is that the importance of that number one wide receiver of Stephon Diggs' caliber? With or without Jefferson? Well, just, yeah, take Jefferson out of the equation. So just say it's, it's, it's Diggs and Thielen. So what is the value of just having Stephon Diggs 
because we have the Bills up at number five in part because he's there, you know, to to add to a very good receiving core already. But if it was Diggs and Thielen and then a whole bunch of nobodies again, they're probably top ten, right? I think they might even be top five with those two. I mean, there aren't that many teams that can that can threaten you with two clear top 15 receivers and arguably top 10 when they're at their best. Um, like That's a tough thing to do, and the Vikings have had both those guys for a couple of years. I think regardless of what else is behind them, that's probably – I mean, it's it's a top 10 group. It's maybe a top five depending on the year. And then like the difference between that and the best receiving core in the NFL is just finding – any viable third option. So, the, yeah, I think having that having that top guy does move the needle a lot. As long as you're not where Green Bay is right now, or Washington is right now, as far as just having nobody else around them. Uh, let's get into the teams. The team that was, I thought the Browns were a, a difficult team to to slot in there with the question marks surrounding Odell Beckham and Jarvis Landry. You know, Landry. He's a fine complimentary receiver. I think he does what he's asked to do pretty well. This completely depends on Odell Beckham. You know, if this was last year at this point, they're probably top 10 because as we've mentioned on the pod before, I mean, every full season that Odell Beckham's had has been in the blue in PFF grading, right? Until last year. Um, if, if it's the old Odell Beckham and he does, you know, fix that connection with Baker Mayfield, this could be a top 10 unit, but they're a lot like the Vikings last year where it's top heavy, Richard Higgins, your boy, he's at number three, but we still haven't really seen it from him all the way around. And we also don't know if it is just going to be a two wide receiver heavy system uh, with Kevin Stefanski coming over. That's how we did it in Minnesota. Was it because of necessity because they didn't have a great number three or is that because of preference? Um, it seems like it might be because of preference, the way the Browns have loaded up at tight end. So I think we're talking about OBJ and Jarvis Landry as the two that need to carry the Browns. But we have them at 18 right now could absolutely see that though moving up if if obj is back to back in in stride yeah and the reason i think that's become more of a question mark than it would have been is i think there like because you can easily spin that in a way of saying well look year one he was dealing with a sports hernia injury if he wasn't odell beckham this year he'll be the real guy and you'll be back to where you want to be fine the reason though that i think that's uh there's there's argument to be had there is that the biggest problem he had last year was not like a lack of um, being physically 100%. It was not being on the same page as Mayfield all season long, right? Like I, I can't see a way in which you can blame a sports hernia injury for those two guys thinking a different route was being run, right? One of them is thinking it's a post. The other one's thinking it's a dig. One, you know, there's they were just – the. Mayfield and Odell Beckham consistently almost more than I've ever seen from a receiver and a quarterback just expected a different thing than what, than the other one was expecting. Right. Um, and I, I just don't see a way you can explain that to injury at which point it, I mean, I don't know whether, whether that'll be fixed or not. Right. There's no reason that like if, <laughs> there's no reason that one guy can't figure out what the other guy is thinking over the course of an entire season, right? At which point, why will it happen automatically in the off season? Sure. It's something to work on, but if they couldn't get it together over four months, why are they going to be able to get it together in an off season? So I, I think whatever way you look at it, you have to be at the very minimum concerned. You have to have that in the back of your mind that there might be a reason 
that these two guys do not click. You know, people thought that Tom Brady and Chad Johnson or Chad Oshosinko would be this great connection. You know, Chad was one of the best route runners in the NFL. So smooth, so quick. You give that with the most accurate quarterback in the league and Brady, and it's a great connection. But they just didn't work. Like, it was a connection that just did not function. And no amount of, like, let's just run it back next year, next year. No amount of doing that would have put them on the same page. So Odell and Mayfield may get there or maybe a connection that just does not function. Yeah, the Browns, one of the bigger storylines. I've, I've heard people say this too, and unfortunately with the, uh, with the COVID stuff, um, we want to see a full season. We want, there are so many intriguing storylines, and of course the Browns, uh, one of them. I want to highlight the Rams at 17, because I think on paper when you say, hey, you've got Robert Woods, you have Cooper Cup, you just lost Brandon Cooks, and you're going to try to replace Brandon Cooks with Van Jefferson, who you drafted in the second round. I look at the Rams and say, if Brandon Cooks was on this team again, if they ran it back with him, they're borderline top five. And then their yeah. tight end situation is borderline top five. And here's why. Um, just using our, our data where we say how, how open was the receiver on every given throw, uh, Robert Woods and Cooper Cup both ranked fifth and sixth since 2017 in just percentage of open targets. And we talk about it here all the time. Forget, uh, you know, I love Henry Ruggs speed and we love the six, four, you know, big tall guy who can go up and get it, but there is nothing more valuable that a receiver can do than to get open. I will put the caveat in place that when you're in the slot, it's easier to get open. It's just, you have higher percentages and Robert Woods may be aided a little bit by tighter splits and some of the stuff that the Rams have put him in position to do. But I think they're an underrated receiving core because Woods and Cup get open quite a bit. The big question mark, though, is can Van Jefferson be that deep threat that Brandon Cooks was? Because that was a well-rounded group when they had that trio. Yeah, they went from a group that was very like the Bills in terms of three yeah. guys, all of whom can get open, all of whom can be really effective, to back to that sort of Vikings thing of you got two now. Two and the third guy is a question mark. Now, you know, Van Jefferson may be a more optimistic question mark than, you know, Laquan Treadwell or Ola B.C. Johnson or whatever, but it's still like it's the difference between a proven, consistent commodity in Brandon Cooks and a question mark that you hope can replace that. So, yeah, I think the Rams overall, their receiving core is fantastic, but that drop or that change, and that's assuming Jefferson even like gets right in the lineup. Like it might be Josh Reynolds holding him off for a while, and we've already seen sure. – the significant downturn that happens when like Josh Reynolds is turned to as the answer. It's just, it's a significant difference in that offense. So I th the other thing that's, that's a play with all this stuff, right. Is the difference between offenses, right. How many receivers you actually need to be on the field at any given time. Like, so the Vikings with Stefanski, as much as not having the third guy was an issue, it was less of an issue than if they'd been running 11 personnel all game long and actually needed a third guy on the field like 75% of their snaps, you know, that the Rams run as much, if not more 11 personnel than anybody. So they need that third receiver to be good. Um, and as I say, we've already seen what happens when they they've turned to, to Josh Reynolds to be that guy. It's a significant downturn. Yeah. I agree on, on Reynolds. I mean, they, they're high on him. I think I, I, I've used solid number four a million times here. I mean, that's kind of what he is. And you just, you hope that he can emerge as to more of a number three option there. Um, the Houston Texans, I put at 15. This is, this is a fascinating team to me because we've spent the entire offseason 
kind of trashing the Texans' moves, and they lose DeAndre Hopkins. But let me read this receiving core to you. And, and when I read it from this best point of view, you know, standpoint, uh, best, best case scenario, it's a pretty scary group here, Sam. You've got Will Fuller, who every time he's out there, that 4-3-2 speed is accounted for, much like the Tyree Kill factor that we talked about earlier. And he's an he's a excellent deep threat. He's been great since, since entering the league when he's healthy. He hasn't been all that healthy since entering the league. They add the aforementioned Brandon Cooks. More 4-3-3 speed added to the mix. Cooks has been productive with the Saints, with the Patriots, with the Rams. He's a quirky receiver. He looks a little – I was telling – I was telling our old friend, Zach Robinson, who's with the Rams, because I I can't tell you what Zach said to me, but I can tell you what I said to him. I said, Cooks runs his routes like he's almost like counting his steps all the time when he's like, oh, they told me, you know, 10 yards and out. And he's just like counting. And then he just like robotically turns and, you know, runs his out out route or whatever. But Cooks has been good. You know, it's kind of funky the way he does it, but Cooks is good. So you have Fuller a deep threat. Cooks a deep threat. Kenny Stills has sub 4-4 speed, and he's another one of those guys where you can't really put your finger on it, but the dude's just always open, often behind the defense with that speed. And then you have Randall Cobb, who I think had the quietest 828 yards I've ever seen, so he's almost a 1,000-yard receiver last year in the slot. And then my boy Kiki Cutie, another jet sweep slot guy when he's healthy. This is the biggest when healthy. I actually love... (laughs) this receiving core if all of those guys are on the field am i crazy that losing deandre hopkins is not that big of a deal if all these guys are out there perception's kind of funny right because randall comp had like 800 years 800 yards last season and the perception of him is he's done and he's like washed and and over the hill right um you know how many yards that will fuller has ever had in his career like high career high for yardage under 800? 670. There you go. Like, Will Fuller's career high for a, for a regular season is 670 yards and 49 catches. And yet the perception of him is, it's like, game breaker, key right. to this offense. Like, <laughs> Cobb outdid him last year in a year where everyone thinks it's, it's like a, a waste of space. Um, it's I fascinating. Know, like, but I will, I will keep pushing the Fuller narrative because legitimately when he's out there, this offense looks different. And it right. was, he was a great deep compliment to DeAndre Hopkins. But now you've got this. How are you going to cover this team with all this speed? Well, the other funny thing is, so he had, what, 670 yards last season, uh, 357 of which came in two games. Like, and wow. 14, 21 of his uh, 49 catches came in those two games. Yeah. So I wonder to what extent Fuller is a product of, there are those couple of games in there where he's just absurd and has these insane games and this is like it's you know it's it's a ceiling it's potential this is what he can be therefore this is what he is i i do think there's something to this idea of i'm not quite sure why or what that what separates him from some of these other just speed receivers but will fuller does change the texans offense when he's out there even if it's not him getting the catches so even if every one of his games isn't a you know 14 catch 217 yard game when he's out there, he changes what happens for the other receivers. So he opens things up for new Compkins or even for tight ends or for running backs. Um, he's one of these guys that I think has an effect on a defense that's measurable, even if it's not all going towards him. 
Cooks is, yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely one of the most intriguing receiving cores in the NFL, particularly as the focus will be put on them because Hopkins isn't there anymore, right? So you right. trade away one of the top five receivers in the game and replace him with, you know, this guy, Brandon Cooks is interesting because nobody wants him. And yet everywhere he goes, it costs a first round pick to get him. And he puts up good numbers. Right. Like he has, he's had, I think twice in his career, he's put up a thousand yard season in his first year in a new system, having been traded for a first round pick. Like yep. it's unusual that you have a guy that consistently productive and system proof that teams do not seem to want to keep around for whatever reason. And then I'll throw Kenny Stills back into the mix here. I think early in his career, he had two years in New Orleans and it was like, is he, he's not like beating corners one-on-one, but he's just, ah, it feels like, it feels like he's the dude that like always takes advantage of coverage busts. He's fast. He runs through the defense, the defense busts the coverage and then Drew Brees would hit him. But over the course of his career, he's averaged over 15 yards per catch. That's a big number. Anything over 15 is like, all right, you're, you're in, you know, stretch the field type of cat, uh, type of category that stills across multiple teams. Now with the dolphins for a few years, last year with the Texans, uh, QBs had a passer rating of 127.5 when targeting him last year. So yeah, I think this Texans receiving core after all the, all the jokes, um, plus because we live in this social media world. So you have to just say, you know, you got to say bad things about Bill O'Brien because of the team building effort. But I think on the field, from a play calling standpoint, maybe not from a fourth down decision standpoint, like Bill O'Brien's done a pretty good job of playing to Deshaun Watson's strengths. Um, it's not just, again, it's not just like Will Fuller go run deep and beat this guy one-on-one. They run a lot of deep over routes and post routes and things where um, that explosiveness is used well. So I am fascinated I, to see this one play out. I also wonder if losing Hopkins has a similar effect on Deshaun Watson that losing Calvin Johnson had on Matthew Stafford, right? So yep. it's it's something of a double-edged sword having a receiver that is so absurdly dominant, particularly one that that wins the way Hopkins wins, right? Which is without separation uh, for, for a lot of the time. Yeah, right. Because you know that that guy is good and you know, he's probably going to win contested catches. So when in doubt, you throw the ball his way. Um, but I think the, I think it's not always a good thing for a quarterback to get into that habit, right? In an ideal world, you want to present your quarterback with the, with a, the truest and best picture in terms of looking up, reading whether a guy is open or not and throwing that guy the ball, right? And if you're not open, you don't get the ball. I move on to my next read. He gets the ball if he's open. Hopkins messes with that equation, right? Because you look up, you have to do the initial read, which is, is he open? And then if he's not, you have to do the, well, it's Hopkins. Is he open, right? Or is he open enough that I'm willing to throw him the ball anyway? And that's, I think you do that when you have a new Hopkins that, uh, Lions certainly did it. Matthew Stafford certainly did it when he had Calvin Johnson. It was like, look, if, if ever I'm in doubt, I'm just finding Calvin and throwing him the ball, which is fine. But like it generally, it works for that guy. Like more often than not, or, you know, more often than most players, that guy comes down with the ball, but I don't think it's necessarily a win overall. I don't think it's a net positive for that quarterback. So Matthew Stafford, I think became a significantly better quarterback the second he had to work out for himself, who was the best likely to come down with the ball. And he didn't just have the default of throwing it to Calvin Johnson. There's a chance, I think, that this is the catalyst 
that makes Deshaun Watson take that step from being some better, you know, the player that Russell Wilson used to be to the player that he is now. That could happen this season with Deshaun Watson if he suddenly has to like fairly evaluate which receivers are open and go through his reads honestly, as opposed to, you know, defaulting that look, if ever I'm in doubt, I'm just gonna sling it in, in Nuke's direction. He's probably coming down with it. Intriguing take, Sam. I'm going to need you to consolidate it into 15 seconds after the podcast for a little. That'll that'll play on social media. Um, the same thing happened with Brady when he lost Randy Moss. Obviously, they put up huge numbers the first year they were together. But by the end, Brady had such a comfort level with Moss. He kind of forced it to him a little bit as well. They got rid of Moss and Brady won the MVP with Dion Branch at wide receiver, kind of replacing Moss and rookies at tight end and Gronk and, and Hernandez, right? So and that was like uh, the second stint of Dion Branch, right? Not even the good one. The second stint, right. When he was right. coming off of like he'd caught four passes over the last four years or whatever it was and was rejuvenated with Brady in the path. So um, there is some of that as much as it, it's funny because we're over here ranking saying, well, Stephon Diggs is going to move this team up 15 spots. And if you if you dropped Calvin Johnson on any of these teams, he's going to move them up. 20 spots because he's so good. But sometimes if you do have a diversified group instead of one elite guy, maybe it does play a little bit better for the quarterback. Um, one of the teams I'm really fascinated by at 13 is the chargers. Uh, they're another one of those teams that is just so good at one and two with uh, Mike Williams and Keenan Allen. Um, from a style standpoint, you've got your route runner and Keenan Allen. You have your contested catch guy and Mike Williams uh, before the Deshaun Jackson stuff happened before he started talking um, I've been trying to figure out where's the best spot for Deshaun Jackson. Cause we'll talk about the Eagles in a minute and Deshaun Jackson's like just one of their many very fast receivers now. So I keep expecting him to land somewhere else. I would, I would have, I would love to see him on the chargers off field aside Deshaun Jackson paired with Mike Williams and Keenan Allen, because I would love that because the chargers number three is just a, a I don't know who it's going to be. Massive question mark at number three, but one and two look really, really good. Yeah. Um, this is, I mean, he lasted to the seventh round and therefore you can't even be counted on to make the roster, let alone contribute. But I could see KJ Hill actually becoming, you know, that third. He's he's tailor-made for a role in the slot at the NFL level and being good that way. Um, but he might you know, be the favorite to be the guy there. I mean, it, yeah, just real quick. It's KJ Hill or it's fifth rounder, Joe Reed, who's kind of a gimmick player, Andre Patton, Jason Moore, Darius Jennings, Jalen Guyton, Tyron Johnson, Jeff Cotton and Dalton Schoen. <laughs> yeah. And I, I look, I, I mean, I'm not arguing that you actually give them any extra weight because of that. Um, that would contradict what we said earlier I, I think you have to work on the basis that it's those two guys and basically nothing else after that but I can see a world in which KJ Hill wins that third job and this time next year we're talking about them as three deep you know as as the top two guys and then this perfect slot receiver compliment in in KJ Hill yeah I'm with you there um I could absolutely see KJ be the guy but yeah the Chargers still 13 because in large part of number 13 Keenan Allen um how about the the Eagles here they spent the entire offseason saying, we're getting faster. We're going to get faster. And they've absolutely done it. Marquise Goodwin, Jalen Rager, and then they had John Hightower and Quez Watkins. So Marquise Goodwin is essentially like an Olympic-level sprinter. Uh, Rager ran in the 4-4s, plays more like a sub-4-4 guy. John Hightower, 4-4-3. Quez Watkins, 4-3-6. And they add those guys to... Deshaun Jackson, who's already there, Alshon Jeffrey, J.J. Arcega-Whiteside. So 
they're throwing a lot at the wall here and seeing what sticks. But either way, the Eagles are going to be faster. We put them at 12 just for this receiving core. Don't forget Rager ran in the four twos in his unverifiable fake pro day That's, numbers that were, you know, yeah. that everybody was throwing out there pre-draft. I would say that is that's the number we should use is whatever the player says. You got to take their word for it. Yeah. I mean, to to his credit, A, the video matched up with it when you frame by frame that thing. But B, pre-combine, people were talking about him as a threat to match rugs, you know, right. to beat rugs in terms of like a 4-2 number, something insane. And then he ran the four fours and everyone's like, what the hell was that? Right. Uh, because I don't think that is the guy that we saw on tape. And it's, you know, it's he's fast. Um, I don't I don't care that he ran a four four at the combine. I think he's faster than that and everyone else I think agrees. Goodwin obviously has insane speed. Don't forget Greg Ward still back there in the depth chart, like the lone man standing from a year ago when they lost everybody to injury and Greg Ward became like their number one receiver for a few weeks. Um he's not slow either, to be fair to him. Um it's it's now an insanely interesting group because how does this shake out, Sam? Where, where do you where do you think this shakes out? Like how does this even work well i don't think they get rid of deshaun jackson because he's still so consistently good at that thing right the idea that you have been a consistent one of the best deep threats in the nfl for a decade is not something to be lightly tossed aside at least until you understand that a jalen rager replaces that right right so i think they keep him he'll be a big part alshon jeffrey is still there who's the sort of he's now the different thing right last year it was Anybody with speed is the different thing, and everybody looks like Alshon Jeffrey. This year, Alshon Jeffrey is like the outlier, is the sort of big possession plotter that brings something different. Injuries are always his concern, but like our Sega Whiteside now needs to show that he can replace Alshon Jeffrey. It's all about like succession plans at this point. Like right. Rager needs to show that he can be Deshaun Jackson. Our Sega Whiteside has a battle on his hands to show he can be Alshon Jeffrey. And then everyone else is like jockeying for roles. Like, can you fit anything? You know, can you provide any kind of role to this system? Because there's now a lot of bodies jockeying for places. And our Sega Whiteside in particular, I think, has to be the guy that's under major pressure because they've had this swing in an approach from, you know, possession, big bodied receivers to speed. And he doesn't have the speed. So he needs to show that he can take a big step forward and make Alshon Jeffrey expendable. Otherwise, I think his space on the roster has got to be kind of in jeopardy. And, and I like the way you laid that out. It's, you know, it's it's a plan for the future, much like drafting Andre Dillard is a plan for the future with Jason Peters, even though they're bringing Peters back to play guard. Um, and you didn't even mention Marquise Goodwin, again, who they dra- they traded for him on day three of the draft, gave up multiple draft picks for him. What are you smiling at? I, I mentioned him. Well, you were not in like the secession plan. You weren't really. Oh, so I, I mentioned him just not in the way you wanted it. Yeah. Well, I'm just re-mentioning him. How about that? Uh, yeah. Over over 16 yards per reception in his career, he peaked in 2017 with over 900 yards, only played about 700 snaps the last two years. They obviously have a plan for him as well. So um, the Eagles, much like the Texans, two of those teams where, man, like on paper, I'm just looking at 40 times and saying, I want to I watch these guys play. Is that wrong of me? Is no, I mean, anytime, you know, we've been talking about how one receiver with devastating speed can change the way a defense defends. Um, like, what if you have three? Like, what, what yeah. if all you're doing is throwing out that level of speed? If nothing else, it has to stress a defense. Like, whether or not it actually 
makes it more fundamentally successful or not is up for debate, but it must be a nightmare to have to contend with. Speaking of game-breaking speed, at number 10, the Cincinnati Bengals, as we creep into the top 10 here, John Ross, he's got one more year to prove himself in Cincinnati, and man, his highlight reel is so tantalizing. But if he's the number four option for the Bengals, this is a big assumption here. A.J. Green's back and healthy. Tyler Boyd is there, who's been just fantastic without A.J. Green there, you know, showing that he could carry the load to a point. But you would never say, hey, Tyler Boyd, my number one receiver, more of a complimentary piece. And then they add T. Higgins, first pick of the second round, unbelievable catch radius. That's three pretty distinct skill sets. And then the fourth one with Ross. If Ross is just a gimmick player and a stretch the field guy and a number four option, I love the makeup of this receiving core for Joe Burrow in, in year one. Is John Ross like your receiver, Jameis Winston? Are you going to spend the next decade being like, this is the yeah. year, John Ross, 4-2, four speed, we see it. This is the year it becomes that devastating deep threat and it all comes together and everybody's happy. So we're we just going to get this every year. Fast forward three years, right? I've got the GM job for the uh, London Silly Nannies or whatever, right? I've got my GM job. And much like you often see, like Bill Belichick will get like Jabal Sheard eight years later when it was like during draft time, they really liked Jabal Sheard and they couldn't get him and they get him eight years. My team is going to consist of Jameis and John Ross Barkevious Mingo is going to be there, you know, special team reforming. All my guys are going to be there. Yeah, yeah. I used, used to do that in Madden. Okay, even though he's got a uh, you know Madden grade in the '60s, I really like this guy when he came out. So I'm bringing him onto my team for no purpose whatsoever. Yeah, that's not going to be the core of my team. However, <laughs> I'm going to take a lot of flyers on guys that I've been talking about really liking over these last few. Jason Barrett's going to be there. I will sign Jason Barrett to a one-year deal every Dude, single amazing, season. How amazing is it that the 49ers just re-up that gamble? Yeah. Why not? It's like, all right, last time he lasted four snaps before he tore something significant. We'll, we'll take another swing. Imagine if you got eight out again. of them. Imagine if you got eight out of them. You, know, you, you just got to like, keep. It's worth it, right? Like his, I think, so. I can't remember what the, the payoff, number was. The but... payoff is astronomical. Right. Like over, I can't remember what the, the data point was. But basically over the, the period of time that he's been in the league, he has the best grade among corners for that time. It's just that he hasn't played in like the last four years. Legit, what, 500 snaps? He's had like 240-something snaps in like the last four or five years. It's insane. And they've been like, not only that, but that number has been going down. Like it went from 150 to like 50 to, you know, four last year. Like the number is heading in the wrong direction, not just it's small. But you're right. Like the pay, like it is literally basically not even burning a roster spot because the chances are he's going to wind up an IR. So you're just burning the money. It's basically just having like an annuity every year on the basis that if it comes together, the payoff is you get like an all pro cornerback out of it. Well worth it. That, that's what you're going to see with my team. Maybe Mingo doesn't make the squad at that point. When I start <laughs> taking over, even I've seen enough of Mingo to know he's not going to be, but Jameis, John Ross. Special teams. True. He's a good special team. That's the beauty of the Mingo gamble, right? Is you can justify it to yourself for a decade on the basis that he's a good special teamer. And then every year you every year you'll be you'll roll up the training camp in your golf cart, like watching Mingo's practice, waiting to see if this is the year he comes together. I'll motivate. I'll be like, listen, Barkevius, I had such high expectations for you. Let me show you (laughs) your top five plays that really sold me on you. Play like this more often. I'll give him a pep talk. 
So what are your thoughts on this Bengals receiving core? This is a bunch of what ifs too, but like one of the what ifs is AJ Green, who at his best is a top five receiver. So this could be really good. Yeah. AJ, I mean, AJ Green should completely transform the, the group. T. Higgins is going to be interesting. Auden Tate was surprisingly useful given the quarterback situation he was dealing with. Um, you know, uh, Dalton missed a lot of time. Ryan Finley was thrown in there, and that was one of those, like, when Ryan Finley's out there, bad things are happening if you're a receiver. So Auden Tate, to be as good as he was, I, I don't think it's a lock that T. Higgins just immediately steals that spot. I think he might have to work for that to – to take the playing time from on Tate. Alex Erickson is another one of these really interesting guys is actually pretty good um, or completely unheralded. This is not a bad receiving group. And when you would like, you know, Joe Burrow is not going to be an all pro from day one, but he could immediately uptick that quarterback situation. Um, And suddenly this group looks pretty good in a hurry. And talking of like guys that you liked, you know, years ago coming out, they have the other Michael Thomas. Oh, there we go. That's what get him up to the top five. Get him to the top five. Michael Thomas, Southern Miss. Yeah, it's so good. Um, I, had to, I had to go to Mike because people because good Michael Thomas was actually you know took it to the name. Maybe should have stuck with Michael just in case. Uh, Auden Tate stat for you, Sam leads the NFL. Thirty-seven point eight percent of his targets have been contested over the yeah, last. I two mean, years. he's really never going to get open, but yeah, he was good at it. Higgins Higgins is big and catch radius and contested catch guy and all that stuff. He's probably got more ability to get open once he gets a feel sure. for the NFL game. Um, Broncos at nine. They're, they're the team that completely revamped their receiving core. You've got Cortland Sutton that that is their number one, really emerged the last two years. I, I love Sutton's game because a lot of times you see the big guy and you're like, oh, the thing we've said a million times here, contested catch guy, but he always had a little wiggle to his game. He's got wiggle to his game after the catch as well. I love what Sutton brings to the table. And then they added Jerry Judy and KJ Hamler. This might be jumping the gun a little bit, putting them at nine, just because we don't know what we're going to get from the rookies. But again, I like the construction of it. I like the direction that they're going. I think they'll at least be top 10 in the coming years if it's not immediately right away. Yeah, this one is tough because, you know, we talked before about how you can't really rely on the rookies to to make an immediate impact right away. And then I did but, in this ranking. Yeah, and I think you almost have to with the Broncos because like two thirds of their top three receivers are going to be rookies. You know, you almost have to bank on something from them. Um, and it's more, it's not just that they drafted rookies for those spots. It is, it's the rookies that they drafted. Like Jerry Judy, I think, was the best receiver in this draft. Um, the way that he wins, I think will immediately translate to the NFL. He's not a guy that relies on his, you know, physical gifts. He relies on just skinning people from a route running standpoint. And he's the most sophisticated route runner. I think we've seen hit the NFL maybe since we've been doing this, certainly, you know, the last one that would have the argument, I think he's better than Ridley from the same school a couple of years ago. I think the only guy that's in the same category would be Amari Cooper. Um, and I think you can make the case that he's better at it than Cooper is. So that immediately... Michael Thomas, though. Michael Thomas is probably in that category. They're just different in how they do it, right? Because Thomas was just pure route running. Michael Thomas? Yeah. Saints. Dude gets open. Now. Didn't at the time. 
he did at Ohio State, which when we charted it, that was the reason why we put him in the first round. His production wasn't great, but because he got open at a higher rate than anybody else when we charted it, he was we moved him up to the first round. I don't think he was a particularly sophisticated route runner at Ohio State, though. He just got open, though. Well, he might have got open, but he wasn't running. Like, he wasn't running a particularly sophisticated route tree, or you, you know, sorry, I didn't the know same you were just kind of bags of tricks that Jerry Judy did. Didn't know you were just talking sophistication. Sorry. Yeah. So, I mean, my point is, I think the things that he's good at should translate immediately. And then KJ Hamler is one of the most devastating X factor players in the entire draft, and because they've got Cortland Sutton and Jerry Judy, they shouldn't need that much from him. They should be able to put him in a situation where he's only doing the things he's really good at. And again, I think that should result in him being pretty useful pretty quickly. So yeah, I mean, I really like A, the players they brought in and B, the roles they're in and C, the fact that they've gone all in and making Drew Locke look as good as he can. And whether or not Drew Locke justifies it or not will is left to be seen but i like that approach you know who else is going to be on my team in a few years is uh broncos receiver tim patrick six foot five coming out of utah the dude just he worked a dory jackson sydney jones kevin i think it was any corner that was pretty good in the pac-12 you just go back and it's like wow tim patrick's owning this dude and then Pretty solid in the NFL so far. 66 grade last year on 30 targets. It's my number four. Mac Hollins will be on my team. Yeah, we should have an all Steve like backup team from a few years. Him and Matt, Tim Patrick and Mac Hollins battling for my number four wide receiver spot. Uh, Cardinals at eight. Once again, the, the power of one. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins takes this receiving core from the 20s to eight. This is like the opposite move with the Vikings, right? Yeah, and it's slightly different because I think this makes other receivers on this group better. Um, You know, there are some groups where, like, the one guy doesn't really affect anything. It just means they have one guy. So Washington, right, as good as Harry McLaurin is, he's not making the other bodies they have significantly better off. The addition of DeAndre Hopkins makes Larry Fitzgerald, I think, a better receiver in 2020 because he can go back – to being, you know, the more aging veteran uh, possession plus guy. He doesn't have to be the number one receiver in this group. So I think that helps him be a better player next year. The fact that those two guys are now a defined one and two, it potentially opens up the ability of Andy Isabella to be a designated deep threat or, you know, a specific role player in the third spot. I'm not in love with what Christian Kirk can do, but again, you need less from him than you would when he was the number two uh, or And then, you know, the same thing is true for Keyshawn Johnson or, or Trent Sherfield. One of those guys can step up and become a contributor and not like you need him to start and actually be effective. So I, I think overall Hopkins improves his receiving core in a way that some of these other, you know, one guy and bodies doesn't do for some of the other guys. I love your point on Fitz um, because, yeah, he could still be that really good possession receiver who catches absolutely everything. You know what? really stood out to me as I'm watching the Cardinals offense and rewatch them. Do you know, he led the league in screen receptions last year. He had 24 catches on screens last year, Larry Fitzgerald in like year 15 of his career, whatever it is, 17. I mean, he's, he's up there. He's just, why would you ever say we got to get the ball in Larry Fitzgerald's hand, Gerald's hands right now. Like those are the passes that should be going to Christian Kirk or going to Andy Isabella 
letting them create after the catch, let Nuke do what he does, let Fitz do what he does, and I think this offense comes together. So I thought that was fascinating to me that Fitzgerald was their screen guy last year when like, he's not that great after the catch right now at this point in his career, maybe 10 years ago. But I think a big part of that was trying to get him the ball, right? It's like we, we, he's now our number one receiver because we don't have anybody else. And, you know, with the greatest respect to Fitz, he's not getting open the way he used to. We need to actually scheme the ball into his hands because we can't rely on him just winning through separation the way we used to be able to. So now he gets to go back to being able to win. He gets separation by virtue of alignment, by being in the slot um, more than he did last season. And you don't have to, you know, try and get him all these passes in a way that he doesn't have to worry about separating. Like, again, it has these knock-on effects. You can put the ball in somebody else's hands on those plays and Fitzgerald can go back to just being what he's good at. So Arizona has a clear elite receiver in DeAndre Hopkins. The rest of this list, let's go through it quickly, seven through the rest, uh, through one. Um, The rest of this list is either three deep or they have an elite receiver to kind of anchor the whole thing. So the Detroit Lions come in at seven, a well-rounded group, Marvin Jones and Kenny Galladay on the outside. Danny Amendola is still one of the better slot receivers in the NFL. Uh, we'll talk about their their four spots, whatever. But this is three deep. Galladay emerged last year, was outstanding. Jones is one of the better in, intermediate, that 10 to 19-yard range, uh, 93 grade over the last two years there. Love the Lions when these guys are all healthy. Yeah. I mean, I think the Lions are a really good receiving group. That's that's a group that is a legitimate trio, all of whom can be effective. Um, obviously, injuries are always a question mark with Danny Amendola, but that's a really solid three. You know what the role that I love too is the the fourth receiver who just comes in for for shot plays. And last year for the Lions, that was Marvin Hall. Last season, four four speed, he plays the deep threat role. He caught seven passes for at thirty seven yards per reception. That was it. <laughs> Give me that guy. I want that guy. You know, you you want you want Henry Ruggs to be your every down guy. If you gave me a Marvin Hall and I could just you know ten plays a game, you throw him out there like, hey guys, we're taking a shot. Marvin Hall's out there. I don't know. Well worth it. I'll take thirty seven yards per reception. Just just need yeah. a few more of them. It feels like that should be a thing that teams can defend after a while. You know, you would think. like this guy comes on the field, well, it's probably going deep. The Titans did that with Khalif Raymond. You know, I kind of like it, though, as a role. I've talked a lot about number four receivers, but that feels like the spot. Like if you, you get good at number th- at the top three and then four, you either have you have some sort of specialty guy, a speed guy or a developmental guy or whatever it might be. I mean, that should be Isabella's role for the Cardinals. If they yeah. can work out that that's what he is as opposed to, um, you know, the slot receiver that they seem to want to turn him into. And that's OK if they know, because that's what opens up the run game and all that. You just got to use that guy right. Uh, number six, Kansas City Chiefs. You've got Tyree Kill as the anchor. You've got Sammy Watkins. You have Mecole Hardman. Uh, the Chiefs, honestly, it depends on how much you want to weigh Tyreek. At the top of the show, we were talking about he could be the most valuable receiver in the NFL as far as the guy you'd want to start a team with. Sammy Watkins is just fascinating because if you said in 2015 – when he had an 89.8 overall grade in his second year in the NFL, you're like, hey, a few years from now, Sammy Watkins is going to go to a team with the best quarterback in the NFL, and he's going to be the number two. You would say that team's breaking the league. And while the Chiefs kind of are, it's not really because of Sammy Watkins. Or the Chiefs might be breaking yeah. the league. I mean, I was, in, I was having an argument with somebody on Twitter the other day about 
like Richard Sherman, right? He, he somehow the NFL thinks he's not a top 10 corner anymore. Um, I was like, look, that's absurd. Like you can argue how high in that list he is, but the idea that he isn't top 10 after last season is nuts. Um, and people were throwing back, you know, Sammy Watkins took him to town in the Super Bowl. One and that's plus. true. Um, like he gave up 70 yards or something was lost at least twice in the Super Bowl to Sammy Watkins. Yeah. A couple but of plays. Yeah. The guy yeah. allowed 200 and something yards in the regular season. Even if you throw in the playoffs, it's like 350. Um, you know, Stefan Gilmore allowed like 600 over the regular season. So he's in a different world than most people in terms of yardage allowed, even if he did get beaten on a couple of plays. Watkins is this fascinating guy because I think overall, He's kind of average, a bit above average, but he's capable if, you know, if you are going to dedicate everything in your arsenal to stopping Tyreek Hill, if you're willing to do what we talked about before about completely warping coverages and pulling a guy away from somewhere and basically sticking him on Tyreek Hill and having him double covered all game, that opens up opportunities and it opens them up for the guy on the other side, which is Sammy Watkins. And as much as like in in an honest defense against an honest defense, he's kind of average. If you're gonna tilt it away from him, he will. He's well capable of like devastating the sort of the cheated defense or the the backup option that's sent his way. And that's kind of the story of his career at the moment is that he ticks along doing not an awful lot, and then you get the game where teams decide that Tyreek Hill is not going to beat them. And Sammy Watkins goes off for like 15 catches and 160 yards. Like he, he's sort of fascinating in that regard. And he's like, he's like those pass rushers that excel in beating up bad tackles. You know, yeah. you don't get that opportunity every week, but then every now and again, they get the six sack game that Adrian Claiborne had against the Dallas Cowboys. Right. Cause you finally got to play that guy that just isn't as good as you. It's a good explanation for that. I mean, don't forget too. week one last year, he goes nine catches, 198 yards and three touchdowns. And through five games, Mahomes grade was down and we had to explain ourselves. Mahomes got ridiculous stats, but his grades down. Sammy Watkins was one of the reasons why everybody's like, well, look at Mahomes. He's just as good as he was last year, because in week one, he had 135 yards after the catch. He was taking like six yard passes and taking them for 68 yard touchdowns and stuff like that. So if they had gotten that Sammy Watkins the entire season combined with Tyreek Hill, you know, that would be dangerous. But then he's got a whole lot of duds in there, too. He's got some games with no catches. Uh, and then all of a sudden in the playoffs, you know, two catches for 76 against the Texans, 117 yards against the Titans in the AFC Championship, and then 98, as you mentioned, in the Super Bowl, uh, you know, against against the 49ers. So what did he I feel like I'm describing Kenny Stills here. The guy, you know, maybe like a slightly better Kenny Stills throughout the, you know, over 15 yards per catch. And some he's got better peaks than I think Stills. But um, either way, Tyree kills the guy that defenses are afraid of. Mecole Hardman was drafted as a guy that was just supposed to be maybe some Tyreek insurance while they figured out what was happening off the field. And all of a sudden, Hardman was open more than any other receiver against single coverage last year. And he averaged what, 18, 19 yards per catch, including the playoffs. I mean, that's just a scary addition to this offense. So the Chiefs at six, I think, is fair, but they could they could be even higher, I think. That, uh, that week one game is a great example of that because Tyreek Hill had two catches for 16 yards. Like and he was, he was banged up. He was hurt. Yeah, and, and the Jags were intent on that not being the reason. 
you know, they, they were intent on Tyreek Hill not beating them. They were intent on Travis Kelsey not beating them. Like he had eight targets, only three catches. Granted, they went for 88 yards, so that didn't work that well. But like that was their focus. And that led Sammy Watkins to leading the team in targets by a distance, leading them in catches by a distance, having the, you know, almost 200 yards and three touchdowns. All right, number five, the Buffalo Bills. I wanted to put them a little bit higher. And here's where we battle the the trio versus some of the some of the peaks. Stephon Diggs is a great receiver. He's not a top five receiver in the NFL, though. Um, but you've got Stephon Diggs, you have Cole Beasley, and you have John Brown. This is my favorite example of these dudes are are, are they're gonna be doing what they're supposed to be doing from a role standpoint. John Brown has run a lot of intermediate routes and he's been really good there over the last few years, but he's got four three, four speed. He can he can get behind the defense and Cole Beasley has the highest open target rate of any receiver in the NFL over the last two years. I mentioned it's easier in the slot, but this is the best in the NFL. Cole Beasley has been open on 77% of his targets. So that has been, that was a big part of Josh Allen's development last year was having to your point, open receivers to throw to you'll complete more. It mitigates accuracy issues. So they have every level covered with Stefan Diggs, John Brown and Cole Beasley. Yeah, I think this is my favorite receiving trio in the NFL just because of the way it's built. Um, people used, yeah. I, I used to think that, so way back it was, you know, you just get yourself the, you try and get as many Randy Mosses as you can find, right? You get the most spectacular athletes, you get a number one receiver, and then you just try and get as good as you can get at every stage down the line. Then I used to think that, you know, the key, a better thing is actually to have balance, right? And get yourself sort of every skill set instead of trying to find the one Randy Moss and then whatever, find yourself a speed guy, find yourself a possession guy, find like find yourself every skill set and piece it all together bit by bit. Now I think that the way to achieve balance is actually not by making sure you have every possible skill set, but by just getting guys that win via route running and separation. And if you're achieve, if you're trying to achieve balance, get every area of the field covered so you shoot for the exactly the same thing guys that win with route running with savvy and with separation but get a guy that wins that way from the slot and underneath and get a guy that wins that way on his deep patterns and get a guy that wins that way on the intermediate stuff and that's what the bills have done they obviously already had beasley and john brown and those guys are sort of two ends of the the two extremes of the spectrum um, John Brown typically wins over the top as a deep threat and Cole Beasley wins underneath. And then you add Stefan Diggs that fits the middle perfectly and is also a pretty good deep threat in his own right. Um, so they've, they've assembled this receiving group that I think g- across the board w- separates better than any receiving trio in the NFL. And they've got all areas of the field covered. It is like the perfect receiving group to try and make the most of a quarterback with accuracy issues well said and their number four receiver isaiah mckenzie third highest uh third in yards on screens last year 120 so there's your jet sweep guy there's your gimmick guy your space player he's only about five eight five nine so um from a top three standpoint outstanding but then you even throw in mckenzie and his versatility as well so yeah i love it i think you're you're right on in that analysis the bills I could put higher again. I think it depends on how do you weigh that against the rest of the teams have a Michael Thomas, a Julio Jones, Chris Godwin slash Mike Evans. And um, we've got the Cowboys up there as well. So going at number four, the new Orleans saints, Michael Thomas 
if it was just Michael Thomas and the other guys that they were trotting out there, maybe a question, but you had Emmanuel Sanders in there. Another guy who was, he was a big catalyst for the 49ers on their Super Bowl run, his route running ball skills, just outstanding. Even in his, what's he 33 now um, still has it right. He's still, he's still pretty good. And Michael Thomas, uh, you know, as good as it gets, Mr. Uh, 99 club. Yeah. And it basically was Michael Thomas and nobody else until Emmanuel Sanders came on board. Um, like they were one of these receiving groups that was one guy and nothing. Um, and last season we saw that, you know, some of the guys that Drew Brees was throwing to over the last two years, it's been like, who the hell are they? Um, and Michael Thomas. And that's what one of the things that's made Michael Thomas's production all the more remarkable is that there's been no other threat. Like teams have been able to easily swing everything in his direction and forget about the fact that, you know, the other guys there, Austin Carr or little Jordan Humphrey or whoever, like any, there's no threat that they've been cycling through. Then you get Emmanuel Sanders and Sanders is still a legit player, particularly when you don't have to concern yourself with him being the number one, like he doesn't have to be Michael Thomas. He just has to, like, he's now a complimentary guy at which point he becomes really dangerous. Um, Like that as a duo is really, really tough to stop because Sanders wins at separation. He wins with savvy. He was able to come to a team like the 49ers that didn't have any real number one and change how dangerous that offense looked. I can only imagine what he's going to do to an offense like the Saints, who already have a, a legit number one, but have been struggling for a compliment. Traquan Smith, I think, is a solid number three. And then when we talk about the – they've always had that deep threat role. Ted Ginn is gone. Deontay Harris, the special team star, uh, he could be the guy out of uh, my conference, Sam, out of Assumption College, out of the Northeast 10, hmm. where, I, where I played not football but baseball. In case you didn't know, little five six Deontay Harris, 10. Northeast Ten, yeah, the NE Ten. <laughs> We've moved up though. UMass Lowell's now up to, uh, you know, they're in Division One now. We were only D two back then. So Division Two receiver Deontay Harris, punt return sensation, but he did catch all seven of his targets for seventy four yards last year, and he had a fifty yarder in the playoffs. Of course, that came from the best quarterback on the roster, Taysom Hill, not Drew Brees. But either way, Harris will be the uh, potential deep threat to complement these other really good route runners and Michael Thomas, Emmanuel Sanders, Traquan Smith. They're at number four. The number three team is the Atlanta Falcons. This is where the debate is difficult. We said Julio's our number one wide receiver, Calvin Ridley, man, that dude knows how to get open. Love him. He can do a lot of things extremely well. And then the number three is Laquan Treadwell, Russell Gage, They're good enough at the one and two, though, right? Julio and uh, in Ridley to be the number three wide receiver core in the league. Yeah, um, they are, and that's again, like that's what they are. It's it's one, two, and then nothing. They're in the same spot the Vikings were uh, for the last couple of years, except instead of sort of two top ten type guys, they've got arguably the number one receiver in the NFL and Calvin Ridley, who's you know not as good i don't think as either stefan diggs or adam thielen but he's not that far behind and julio is significantly better so yeah it's gonna be interesting can they find that third guy because that's what propels you from being a top five receiving group to being the best receiving group in the nfl is that third option and the the falcons have kind of struggled for that guy for a while as well like justin hardy clung onto this roster for years for some reason because they just couldn't find a third fourth guy 
Well, they had that point where it was Julio Jones, Taylor Gabriel, and Mohamed Sanu. And it was like, all right, that's Julio's so good at the top. Those other guys can be pretty good. Um, Russell Gage has been just a possession receiver. He might have the inside track at the number three. Uh, Zacchaeus, Olamide Zacchaeus, undersized slot receiver. I mean, out of Virginia a couple of years ago, he could be a guy that that sees some time. But this is, I think the Falcons, they have far more question marks this year, I think, they, than they have in recent years because they've just had a tough roster uh, to sustain the last few years. But they're number three receiver. And then all over at tight end, they have to replace Austin Hooper. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of potential targets out there knowing that Julio and Ridley are going to be taking most of the attention. Uh, but they're good enough that they would be number three. And then the top two receiving cores, we have the Tampa Bay Bucks at number two and then the Dallas Cowboys at number one. What are your thoughts on starting with the Bucks? They're another team that's a little top-heavy, but two guys that ended up in the PFF top 50, Chris Godwin and Mike Evans. Yeah, they're interesting because we don't know what this offense is going to look like yet. Um, We don't know both what it's going to look like in terms of style. Like, are they still going to be Bruce Arians, push the ball deep down the field consistently? Are they going to be more Tom Brady, shallow underneath? What personnel group are they going to use? They've got an absolute boatload of tight ends now, but are they going to use a slot receiver uh, the way Tom Brady has liked to for most of his career? Um, Because that changes things, right? If they run with this two tight end personnel package heavily, then it's Mike Evans and Chris Godwin are basically the only two receivers that really matter. But if they do want to use this slot receiver, that suddenly opens up this competition between you know, Tyler Johnson, the fifth round rookie from Minnesota this year, Scott Miller, maybe like there, that becomes a sort of interesting battle of who wins Brady's favor, who becomes the, the Julian Edelman, the Danny Amendola, the Wes Welker, the guy that he trusts inside um, to, to move the chains for him. And Tyler Johnson could be an intriguing guy for that role, but even just like the duo of Mike Evans and Chris Godwin is pretty absurd. Like those were two top 10 receivers last year. Chris Godwin was like a human highlight reel package last season. The amount of like horrific Jameis Winston throws that he rescued and turned into something productive is kind of insane. Um, I don't know if that's sustainable over a dramatically long period of time, but Mike Evans is also like the start to his career is insane. Like in terms of back to back to back to back consecutive thousand plus yards, you know, he's had a statistical start to his career. Unlike, many receivers in the NFL the number of I saw a list recently it was like him and Randy Moss in terms of like seven consecutive thousand plus yard seasons or whatever to to begin his career in NFL history like just him and Randy Moss yeah Evans how many times have you gone back and looked at a season been like yeah Mike Evans definitely one of the best receivers in the NFL uh there's not too many of those years, but I think it's just over and over. It's like, oh, here's 1,500 yards, here's 1,300 yards, here's 12 touchdowns here and there, and you just add it all up, and it's like, wow, that guy's been really consistent. I mean, he's probably like the seventh best receiver in the NFL every year. Yeah, that's a good which way is hard to do. Yeah. yeah, and he's another guy. He's averaged over 15 per catch in his career, over 17 per catch each of the last two years. So um, him and Jameis have been a nice little pairing as well when you've got that monster frame and, and Jameis – just from a Mike Evans production standpoint, you're going to have a lot of opportunities with Jameis that number three receiver role though. Scotty Miller, one of the, he's more like the classic undersized receiver who actually has four, three speed could be more Brady's flavor as a slot receiver, 
but then you've got Tyler Johnson. He'd be the flavor for more of like a vertical threat in this, uh, in this offense, a little bigger. Um, so yeah, I think I'll be interested to see that play out. And then to your point, they're also three deep at tight end with OJ Howard, Gronk and Cameron Brait. but, um, the bucks they're carried by their top two. And then the Dallas Cowboys, they're the team that has a star receiver in Amari Cooper, but also I would say two legitimate number twos. So like the difference between them and the bills star receiver and Stefan Diggs, And then, all right, we have a number two caliber receiver in John Brown and the classic slot in Cole Beasley. I think when you look at the Cowboys, you're saying Michael Gallup, a legit number two that emerged last year, CD lamb, at least right now as a rookie, a legit number two with number one potential. He was right there with Jerry Judy atop our wide receiver draft board. I think it's pretty clear. The Cowboys have the top receiving core in the league. Yeah. I think, um, similar to Denver with Judy, it, there's at some point you have to give some kind of credit to the receiver in terms of being a rookie and what you expect from him right away. Um, you know, I think CD lamb and Jerry Judy were so high in terms of what we graded them as coming out that you have to expect them to be reasonable, um, in the NFL right away. And then the other thing that goes in their favor is that the less you expect and need from the rookie, the better it is. So, you know, CD lamb, if he's a disaster, it's not a it's not the worst thing in the world for the Cowboys because they already have two good starters in Amari Cooper and Michael Gallup, which means you know the absolute most they need from him is to be a solid number three, which I would ex- I would think he can exceed comfortably even in year one. So I think the fact that they don't need him to be you know, the role for him isn't that massive unless he deserves it is a good thing for this receiving core uh, being boosted by the arrival of CD Lamb. Like you don't need him to come in and be as good as he was in college right away. Cause you already have all this other quality. And then continuing our Dak Prescott debate, we talked about how, Hey, some years he's ranked in the top 10. Some years he's been much lower than that. 2018 is when Amari Cooper showed up and here's the number that expected points added number an advanced number. That's basically like on each play, how much closer are you getting to scoring higher is better. Uh, Amari Cooper has been on the field for 907 plays since joining the Cowboys, their EPA is 122 expected points added, 122 EPA on those 907 plays. So remember that number. There's been 425 plays without him during that time, and EPA is about three. So 122 versus three on, you know, about double the plays, a little over double the plays. In other words, when Cooper's on the field, this offense is completely different. And I think the point we've made over and over and over again is a number one wide receiver is great, but once you have someone else to, to do something with the attention that they're not getting. So Michael Gallup last year, his emergence as an intermediate threat, number nine in yards on intermediate throws. Um, last year, Randall Cobb, who we said had 860 yards. They have had viable pieces next to Cooper. They do again. Um, so that's why you'd expect the Cowboys. It might be tough to duplicate that production across the board. Because like we said, Cobb was really good. Like C.D. Lamb to go for 860 as the number three this year might not happen, but they have all the pieces to have another really productive passing offense. And then the cherry on top, Sam, their number four receiver, the crucial number four receiver could be Devin Smith, who just had like two weeks of flashing the the deep threat. Five catches for 113 yards in three games last year. He could be the take the top off the defense guy. Yeah, Finally. Before they forgot about him completely. Um, the, the Amari Cooper point is a good one because a number one receiver like that doesn't just make you better 
by the percentage that he is better than the guy he was replacing, right? It makes you better by that and by the uh, percentage that that former number one receiver is better than the number two, right? It's like, it's a compounding effect. It makes you better both. Yeah, it makes you better both by the improvement you made at number one and by the improvement you've made at number two and number three all the way down. So it has this compounding boost on the entire receiving group. Cooper's already proven to be that. I mean, that's every one of these additions. That's that's the DeAndre Hopkins edition in particular in Arizona. It's not just going to make them better by the percentage that Cooper is better than or that uh, that Hopkins is better than the other guys. It's going to have this compounding effect all the way down the depth chart. That's what this Dallas group is. And yeah, I think it's really good. I honestly don't know why they went away from Devin Smith, having sort of discovered that he was still useful after those ACL tears, but he could and should be like a viable part as a number four in this offense. Even if it is just your Max Hall designated, come in, take a deep shot, get it back on the bench thing. Like he could do that and be effective. Yeah, just go ahead and average 37 yards per catch real quick, and then this Cowboys offense mm-hmm. goes to the next level. Unfortunately, there's questions at tight end. Blake Jarwin, you know, Jarwin will probably have a productive season given everything around him, but, man, if they had another threat at tight end, this this offense would be scary good. But that's for another time. Tight end rankings are also over at PFF.com. Um, but that's Smith it, man. Could only average, uh, only average 22.6 yards per catch last year. That's it. You got to get up to 37. You need 15 more per catch. Uh, that's your receiver rankings. The full write-ups over at pff.com. Put a lot of time and effort into these. We've also got, like I said, team previews coming out every single day or mon- every Monday through Thursday over the next uh, three weeks. We've already got a bunch already over there. Um, and all sorts of uh, preseason preview content over at pff.com. Um, I believe it's the last day. If you're listening right now, the last day for our Fantasy 40 sale. Is that right? 40% off? Yep. All of our PFF products, Fantasy 40 is the promo. Fantasy 40, 40% off any PFF product. You get it for the whole year. So that's 365 days of access. We'll be back. What do you want to do on Thursday? More rankings, Sam? Some more preseason rankings? We got D-line. We got tight ends. Where do you want to go? Yeah, see if uh, see if any news breaks. We're supposed to be getting teams, the first two teams reporting back, right, to training camp, albeit yeah. the reporting appears to be just like roll in, get your swab and get the hell out of there again just to see if you've got COVID. Um, I think it'll be a while before anything's actually happening in terms of action. But we'll see what news breaks, and then we'll uh, cover some some other stuff. And then, yeah, we'll have some uh, team preview uh, breakdowns. We'll go in-depth on every one of your teams, I promise, uh, at some point during the preseason. So thanks to everybody for tuning in, and we'll be back again on Thursday.